Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll invite you to turn your Bibles. Uh, why don't you turn to two openings of Scripture tonight? First Thessalonians chapter 5 and then uh, Romans chapter 7. We are uh, uh, speaking on the subject of the spirit of man. We've talked a little bit about spirit, soul, and body. We're using as a text Scripture. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. So he's talking about the completeness of man or the makeup of man. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about spirit, soul, and body at, uh, at some length. We certainly haven't exhausted the subject. We could talk about this forever and, and uh, not get everything finished. But, uh, but we've talked a little bit about uh, spirit, soul, and body. We've, uh, we've looked at some scriptures that identify, for example, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We know that's talking about the spirit of man. The reason we know about that is because uh, from experience, if nothing else, if we didn't have any other scripture, experience would tell us that that has to be the spirit because the body doesn't change at the new birth. Neither does the, the soul, which is easily identified as the mind, the will, and the emotions. Then none of those, neither of those areas are changed by the new birth. So it's the spirit of man that's been made new. And, of course, this confirms what the prophets of the Old Testament said where God said, I'll take away the old heart, the stony heart out of him and put a new spirit within him. Now, um, in Romans chapter 7 and 8, um, there, I know I've been talking about this a lot here lately in, in several different services, both Sunday mornings and uh, here on Wednesday night, but, uh, but there's some things that I, I keep trying and I can't seem to get across. So we're going to take another run at it tonight, if that's all right, for, for at least a little bit of the service. Romans chapter 7, Paul is telling us about his struggle. He's talking about the struggle between his flesh, the outward man, and his spirit, the inward man. Now, he's certainly not talking about this at the time that he's writing. He's not saying, this is my experience now. He's writing uh, about the experience as he looks back to how he learned to overcome the desires of his flesh and, and um, the wrong activities that his flesh would try to pull him into. And, and the reason this story is important in, in this setting in, uh, when we talk about spirit, soul, and body is because he's t- differentiating between the man on the inside, the real him, and the man on the outside. Now, let me, let me tell you just a little bit about my experience. It seems to me from the well, almost 27 years now that, uh, or 26 plus years, I guess, since we've uh, started the church and in the, the period of time that I was in ministry before, both uh, traveling and uh, doing some work here in the States and then overseas, and the time that I was working with Brother Hagen, this seems to be an area where people uh, keep tripping up. In other words, there was something about Paul's experience that the average Christian doesn't seem to be duplicating. Now, I believe with all my heart that Paul told us about his experience so that we could learn from it and overcome like he did. Why else would the Holy Ghost inspire him to tell about his experience? But it seems to me that many, many Christians, if not most Christians, well, certainly most Christians, don't follow that example. They don't see the reality of what Paul is saying by the Holy Spirit so that they overcome the desires of their flesh. And as a result, they, become, they stay slaves to their bodies. They may have been saved for 50 years, but they're still a slave to their flesh. That's not the way God wants it to be. And, and the, um, the thing... Uh, Well, that's not a good way to say it. The revelation that Paul received was what enabled him to overcome. 
what happened was his soul became aware of something that his that he was not before aware of. And that revelation, what he became aware of, enabled him to utilize the power that he had as being a new creature in Christ Jesus from the time that he was born again in Acts chapter 9 to utilize that power to overcome his flesh. And so let's, uh, let's start reading here a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, as I said, the seventh chapter of, of Romans is Paul trying to explain the difference between the real man on the inside and the desires of the flesh. Chapter 8 of Romans talks about the victory that we have and how to utilize that victory and overcome the desires of your flesh. But I'm going to read chapter 7 and and some in chapter 8 from the complete Jewish Bible. Now, the reason that I do this is because it brings out some some of what I believe is the true meaning that Paul was writing about the difference in the inward man and the outward man. Now, the inward man... You're going to see very clearly he's talking about the real me. That's the spirit that's been recreated in Christ. The outward man is the desire of the flesh. Now stop and think about this. Before we read anything, I'm going to assume, and I hope this is not a mistake, but I'm going to assume you know a little bit about the story. I'm going to assume that you've read chapter 7 and chapter 8 at least to enough degree, enough uh, read it enough so that you know that Paul is talking about the conflict that he's having. Now let me ask you a question. Why is he having a conflict? One of the things that the Lord deals with me about more than anything else is that I take stuff for granted. See, stuff that I assume to be the most basic and and, uh, elementary things as far as Christian growth and spiritual development and so forth, I assume everybody knows that. And God over and over and over keeps telling me, and it's usually after the fact, I will make an assumption, I'll take something for granted that everybody knows it, and then I'll find out later on that that people didn't have the, the... uh, the foundation, they didn't have the realization of what I'm taking for granted that they know. And so a lot of what I'm saying is going over people's heads. Case in point, in recent times was when I was talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh and where he prayed three times that uh, the messenger of Satan would be taken away from him. Many translations, instead of saying that it would depart from him, that he, talking about a personality that stirring up persecution would depart from Paul. And the Lord said three times, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, I just made a statement that um, uh, uh, that the grace of God can mean one of two things. The grace of God can mean the finished work of Jesus for the things that Jesus paid for. But it could, on the other hand, it means the strength of God for the things that Jesus hasn't redeemed you from. And I just made the casual statement and went on assuming that everybody understood that. And I had probably 10 people come up to me after the service and say, what are you talking about? Well, what do you mean? What hasn't he redeemed us from? Well, Jesus hasn't redeemed you from persecution. See, the fact that it can't be sickness and disease as much as the church holds uh, to the belief concerning is that Jesus paid for sickness and disease and there's no way that God would ever say, that the Lord would ever say, my grace is sufficient for you in something that he's already paid for. He'd say, use your faith and take hold of it. Because grace is never applied in the physical sense. Never in scripture is grace applied in the physical sense. But he hasn't redeemed us from persecution. So upon the realization that everybody didn't understand that, that we went back and we covered it, cleared it up. I don't know if we spent enough time on it, but we spent some time on it anyway. Well, I I do that regularly. I'm I'm coming to see more and more that I take too much for granted. And so I'm going to try not to take some things for granted. And and forgive me if, if, uh, 
Well, I guess the reason that I do it, if I really examine what I do and why I do it, I guess the reason for that is I don't want to talk to you on an elementary level. But the reality is that's where most of us need to be talked to. When I look at the things that Brother Hagin told and the stories that he told, they were first grader stories. And that's the reason I got a hold of them. If he had talked to me on the, the level of maturity that I thought I was at, I would have missed everything he said. Now, he could have, but it would have gone right over my head. Well, forgive me if I do that from time to time. I'm going to try not to do that so much. So the reason that I want to go to the complete Jewish Bible is because it talks about it in terms that I think make it easier to understand. Paul is coming to the, he's sharing the revelation that he received about how he overcame his flesh. Now, folks, without, uh, well, you'll see it as we go through. The thing that made the difference in Paul was not a change in his spirit. The thing that made the difference in Paul overcoming his flesh was not a change in his flesh. His spirit didn't change from the time that he was a slave to his body to the time that he overcame his body. His body didn't change from the time that his body was enslaving his spirit to when his spirit was dominating his flesh. Neither of those changed. What changed? What changed was his understanding. What changed was the soul. He renewed his mind to the truth and the renewal of his mind to the truth enabled his spirit to overcome the desires of his flesh. And I'm going to show you before we get through tonight, I'm going to show you that's how you grow in anything and everything of God. The growth that we have is not just spiritual growth per se, it's growth in the soul of man. And when I talk about growth in the soul of man, I mean specifically Romans 12, 1 and 2, presenting our bodies a living sacrifice through the renewing of our mind to the truth of the word. Are you with me in Romans chapter 7? You can read along with me in the, in the uh, King James or whatever translation you have, but I'm going to read from the complete Jewish Bible. Paul is writing beginning in verse, seven, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. He said, Surely you know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who understand Torah. He'll use, uh, he'll use Torah in a couple of different uh, ways in this translation. He talks about the law of the, of, uh, the Spirit, meaning that which God gave. He talks about Moses' law, and he talks about the law of the flesh. Now, he'll use Torah as a capital T, in, uh, in the complete Jewish Bible when he's talking about the law of the Spirit or God's law. He'll use Torah in quotations and in small letters as it's translated in the complete Jewish Bible when he's talking about the law of the flesh. So I'll, I'll try to clue you in on that as we get there. Surely you know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who understand Torah, the law of God, that the Torah has authority over a person only so long as he lives. For example, a married woman is bound by Torah, the law of God, to her husband while he is alive. But if the husband dies, she is released from that part of the Torah that deals with husbands. Therefore, while the husband is alive, she will be called an adulteress if she marries another man. But if the husband dies, she is free from that part of the Torah, the law of God, so that if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Thus, my brothers, you have been made dead with regard to the Torah, the law of Moses, through the Messiah's body, so that you may belong to someone else, namely the one who has been raised from the dead in order for us to bear fruit for God. So he's, he's summarizing, here's how it works, coming out of the law and being joined together with Christ. You're not subject to the law of God, the Old Testament law of God, the law of Moses any longer. For when we were living, verse 5, for when we were living according to our old nature, the passions connected with sins worked through the Torah 
in our various parts with the result that we bore fruit for death. In other words, he's saying when we were bound by the law, the Old Testament law, we couldn't keep it. And so therefore, everything that we did produced death on our behalf. That's why the sacrifice was necessary. But now, verse 6, we have been released from this aspect of the Torah because we have died to that which had us in its clutches so that we are serving in the new way provided by the Spirit and not in the old way of outwardly following the letter of the law. Therefore, what are we to say? That the Torah, the Old Testament law, is sinful? Heaven forbid. Rather, the function of the Torah was that without it, I would not have known what sin is. For example, I would not have become conscious of what greed is if the Torah had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, worked in me all kinds of evil desires, for apart from the Torah, sin is dead. I was once alive outside the framework of Torah, but when the commandment really encountered me, sin sprang to life, and I died. The commandment that was intended to bring me life was found to be bringing me death. In other words, he's saying we couldn't keep it. We knew what the right thing to do was, but we couldn't keep it. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, sin killed me. So the Torah is holy, that is, the commandment is holy, just, and good. Then did something good become for me the source of death? Heaven forbid. Rather, it was sin working through death in me through something good, so that sin might clearly be exposed as sin so that sin through the commandment might come to be experienced as sinful beyond measure. For we know that the Torah, even the Old Testament law, is of the Spirit. But as for me, I am bound to the old nature, sold to sin as a slave. Now he's talking about his own own, uh, uh, conflict. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah is good. But now it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside me. You see where he starts making the distinction? Now here's the first thing that Paul is, is telling us about the revelation that he received that overcome, helped him to overcome the desires of his flesh, the wrongful desires and wrongful actions of his flesh. He's saying, I found out that there's a difference between the real me and the things that are happening in my body. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm coming to understand the difference between spirit, soul, and body. Now, folks, I would submit to you that there's not a lot of teaching, certainly not enough teaching, church-wide, about spirit, soul, and body. And if this is to be believed, that Paul's understanding of spirit, soul, and body and the difference between the real man on the inside and the outward man that still has the same desire to sin as he did when he was bound by the law... Because the outward man hasn't become a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's the inward man that became new. If, the, if he's telling us the truth, that the revelation of the difference between the man on the inside and the man on the outside is necessary to overcome the works of the body, the evil deeds of the body, then most of the church is never going to get there. You see my point? See, these are things I take for granted. I grew up on spirit, soul, and body. I say grew up on it. It's been 35-plus years when I started hearing Brother Hagin teach on it. I didn't grow up in a church that taught on it. When I first heard these things, I thought, wow, this sounds like it's from another planet because it was nothing associated or close to what I'd heard growing up in church. But I've, I've been in it so long that I take for granted that everybody else has been in it a long time like me, and that just doesn't seem to be the case. 
So here's Christianity 101. There's a difference between the man on the inside and the man on the outside. The man on the inside is the real you, and that's what Paul is talking about. And he comes to the place of victory by recognizing it's not the real me on the inside that's doing the wrong stuff. Let's keep reading. Verse 17 again, but now, well, back up to verse 16. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah, the law of the Old Testament law is good. But now it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside me. For I know that there is nothing good housed inside me. Here's what he means about by housed inside him. That is inside my old nature. I can want what is good, but I can't do it. Now, why can't he do it? Why can't he do it? For the same reason that other Christians can't do it. But wait a minute. He gets to the place where he can do it. So what changes? It's not his spirit and it's not his body. What changes? What changes is his mind becomes renewed to the truth of who he is in Christ. In other words, the key to victory for Paul was not a change in spirit. It was not a change in body. It was a gaining of knowledge and understanding from the truth of God's word that helped him to take advantage of what Jesus had already provided for him. Now, folks, here's where, here's where the church punts. We see scriptures that say things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, oh, boy, every denomination will sing songs about that. And then moan and groan because they keep tripping over sin. Well, wait a minute, if you can do all things in Christ through Christ Jesus who strengthens me, strengthens you, then why can't you overcome sin? And, the, and, and churches even build doctrines on that. Well, we'll never overcome this sinful nature. Really? You think that's God's plan? It certainly wasn't for Paul. If that was Paul's plan, then he would then then his whole story of chapter seven and chapter eight of Romans would be I found that I'll never overcome sin, and Jesus said, Don't worry about it. But that's not what he did. And he's telling us by the Holy Ghost, here's what I learned and here's how I overcame. Here's the victory that I gained. Churches will sing songs about we're complete in him. Well, complete in him, that word complete means perfect. It means filled up to the full. Well, wouldn't that enable you to overcome sin in your life? If it doesn't, then you're not complete. We need to change the song to I'm partially complete. I'm almost complete. Verse 18 again, for I know that there is nothing good housed in me that is inside my own nature. In other words, in my flesh. King James says in my flesh. I can want what is good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good that I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want is what I do. But if I'm doing what the real me doesn't want, it is no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside me that is in my flesh. So then I find it to be the rule, a kind of perverse Torah, small case, small t, in other words, the law of the flesh, that although I, meaning the real me on the inside, wants to do what is good, evil is right there with me. In other words, he's saying, here's what he's saying. He's not saying that evil is always going to be present in his flesh because it wasn't. He's not saying that I'll never escape sin because he did. He's, never, he's not saying I'll never escape the wrong desires of my body and the wrong actions of my body because he did. So what is he saying? He's saying sin is always there to pull your spirit away from doing what the Bible says to do. 
that doesn't mean you have to yield to it. That doesn't mean you have to stumble over it. For in my inner self, verse 22, for in my inner self, that's the real him, I completely agree with God's Torah. In other words, the law of the Spirit. I agree with what the Word of God says to do from the inward man. King James says, I delight after the law of God uh, with the inward man or in the inward man. In other words, he's saying the real me always wants to do what the Bible says. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Is that true for you? You might even be afraid to admit it. But the fact is, if you're born again, that is true for every one of us. From the inside, the real you on the inside, the one that's been made a new creature in Christ Jesus, you always want to obey the word. Now, your flesh doesn't. And your mind may not be renewed to what the Bible says to do. But from the inside, you always want to do what God's Word says. And that's the condition that Paul is describing in himself in times past when he's looking back to it. He said, the real me on the inside always wants to do right. Now, can I ask you another question? Why is Paul in such conflict over this? If the real man on the inside wants to do the right thing and it's the body that's doing the wrong thing, Where's the conflict? If he's supposed to just be satisfied with this way of life, well, it's just, you know, Jesus is coming back someday. Thank God when he comes back, we'll have a new body. I get so tired of the church copping out on the rapture because it's like the rapture will be an escape so that we don't have to really do what the Bible says God wants us to do in the meantime. Jesus is not coming back so that you can overcome to the desires of your flesh. Jesus is coming back, Paul, with our text scripture. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. God wants you in good shape, spirit, soul, and body when he does come. Not to make some kind of means of escape so that you don't really have to overcome your flesh. Hello. If you're born again, you're a new creature on the inside, new creature in Christ Jesus. Your spirit has been made you. And you, the man on the inside, always wants to do what the Word says. Always. The only reason Paul is having a conflict is because the man on the inside always wants to do right, the man on the outside always wants to do wrong, and there is a tipping point in the middle that's called the soul. And if it was not for his soul, he wouldn't care if he's doing right or wrong. He'd just say, thank God I'm going to heaven. And so many Christians are thanking God that they're going to heaven someday. And until then, they'll just have to work out things the best they can here on the earth. That's not God's plan. The Bible does say work out your own salvation, but it's not saying just take whatever comes. It's saying renew your mind to the truth so that you can learn to conquer and walk in victory like Paul did. Are you out there? You, say this after me. The real me, I always want to obey God's word. The reason that Paul is having a conflict is because his soul, his conscience tells him that the actions of his flesh, which he doesn't think at this point in time he has any control over, is doing the wrong thing. The conscience is the voice of the spirit. It's his spirit telling him, you don't have to live in this fallen condition. Fallen does not mean unsaved. It means you do not have to live like the unsaved do. 
as a slave to your flesh because you, the real you, has been made new in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, here's something that, that I don't expect you to say amen to this, but this is the truth. You can overcome sin if you want to. And if you don't overcome sin, it's because you didn't really want to. Now, when I say you, I'm not talking about the man on the inside because the man on the inside always wants to do right. I'm talking about your will, which is a part of the soul. Your will, a part of your soul, was not determined, focused on, and um, determined. I don't know what other word to use. Determined to do what was necessary to gain the victory. And that's what Paul makes the change in. It's not his spirit that changes. It's not his body that changes. It's his soul that changes. The mind, the will, and the emotions. He learned to use the mind, the will, and the emotions, which is always the middle ground, which is always the tipping point. If it tips over toward the body, then the body will do evil things. If it tips over toward the soul or toward the spirit, then the spirit will dominate the flesh and obey what the word says. The soul is always the middle ground. It is always the deciding factor. No question about where your spirit is. Your spirit's always on God's side. No question about where your, your body is. It's always on the side of, of evil. Now, it can be trained. But the only way that it can be trained is by the spirit and the soul ganging up on the, on the body so that the body can't dominate. The body can't have its way. And that's the change that Paul makes. Verse 22 again. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah or God's law. But in my various parts, I see a different Torah, a different law. One that battles with the Torah in my mind, the law of God in my mind, and makes me a prisoner of sin's law, which is operating in my various parts. What a miserable creature I am. Who will rescue me from the body, this body bound for death? Thanks be to God, He will. Through Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. To sum up, with my mind, I am a slave of God's Torah. He's talking about the mind of the spirit. He's talking about the inner man. With my mind, I'm a slave of God's law, but with my old nature, I'm a slave of sin's law. Chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, in other words, because this is true, because the man on the inside always wants to do what's right. The body still tries to do what's wrong, but the man on the inside always wants to do what's right, and that's the real me. (coughs) Excuse me. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation... There's no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with Jesus the Messiah. Now, what is he saying? He's saying because God made you new from the inside, he's not mad at you over the struggle in your body. Why? Because you can gain the victory over your body. You can win the struggle by simply renewing your mind to the word. God's on your side. Your spirit... Your conscience may be condemning you. Now, here's something else I take for granted that people uh, know and found out and and am coming to realize that not everybody knows. God, Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1, tells you very specifically, God never condemns you for doing the wrong thing. Well, then what's that voice on the inside of me that says that I did wrong? That's your conscience, the voice of your spirit. Your conscience condemns you when you take any step outside of love or any step contrary to the word, which would be a step outside of love. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Any step outside of love, your spirit brings condemnation, not the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, when Jesus is talking about giving him another comforter, he said he will convict the world of sin. 
not the church. He speaks of three things that the Holy Spirit will do. He said he will convict, he will reprove them, the world of righteousness, convict them of sin, and of judgment. What does that mean? That means, very simply put, the one and only one thing that the Holy Ghost ever brings condemnation to anybody about is rejecting Jesus. You remember when Jesus said in John chapter 6, I think it's about verse 44, he said, no man can come unto me except my Father draw him. How does the Father draw him? How did the Father draw you? How did he draw me? Same way. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What was the conviction of the Holy Spirit? The realization, the inward knowing, the realization that the preaching of Jesus is true. And that's all. That's all the Holy Ghost will ever convict anybody about. And that's what Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1 is talking about. There is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because you're in Christ Jesus. You, the man on the inside, always wants to do the right thing. Now, your spirit will tell you when you do the wrong thing, and the devil will pile on too. Now, folks, let me, uh, let me bring a truth to you. Again, this is another one of those things that I take for granted. There are all kinds of things that people believe that aren't true, and the lack of truth, that belief in something that's not true, holds them away from the, the, the benefits of God. And that's true in every area. For example, you could look at that in, in, uh, in simple terms. What we call feelings is not the real us. We call feelings part of the body. We call feelings part of the, uh, the soul, meaning the emotions. And none of, neither one of those are the real us. Advertising tries to deal with your emotions. They put commercials on of people drinking beer and, and make it look like that's what you want. Look at how happy these people are. Well, why don't beer commercials show somebody hanging over the toilet throwing up their guts? Because they're trying to sell an emotional feeling to you. Gym memberships, fitness clubs, they'll put toned, young, hard-bodied people on there. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's running, doing all this stuff. Why don't they show somebody somebody sweating and get the hernia from lifting weights? (laughs) Because they're trying to touch and tap into your emotions. And so often the reality, we'll buy a gym membership, we'll see something and we'll say, hey, yeah, that looks like fun. Uh, we want to do that. that. We can do it. We can do it. We get in there and start hurting and we think, forget this. <laughs> and the only thing that will overcome the pain of the workout is if we've really determined as a part of our soul, meaning our will, that it's worth the pain. In other words, we have to make a determination from something that goes deeper than the flesh if we're going to overcome and conquer the pain, the desire of our flesh. This works the same way in other areas. Somebody can look at you crossways and you can think, oh, they don't like me. Well, maybe they just had gas. (laughs) I'm convinced that some of the looks I get on Sunday morning, it's just people with gas. (laughs) That's what gets me through some services. I tell myself, that person over there has got gas, yeah. But so often we see something. This is especially true where texting and emails and stuff like that are concerned. Because we can say something and mean nothing and, and offend somebody just because they read something into what we said because they couldn't see our face, they couldn't see our body language and so forth. And so something that they choose to believe becomes the basis for the way they change their behavior. And it has no foundation in truth. It's just what they perceive. The same thing's true in every area of God. You know the reason why the church doesn't prosper? You know the reason why the majority of the church doesn't walk in health? Because of wrong thinking about healing and prosperity. 
It doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus purchased. It doesn't have anything to do with the will of God. It has to do with what they think about what the Bible says instead of what the Bible really says. For that, in that same vein, so many people think God's against them because they're stumbling over their flesh. And that wrong thinking is what keeps them out of the fullness of God's blessings. It's not that God's against them. It's not that he doesn't want good things for them. It's not that he's mad because we keep stumbling over our flesh. The Bible says just the opposite. It says there is therefore no longer, well, how does it say from the complete Jewish Bible? Therefore, there is no longer any condemnation awaiting those who are in union with Jesus the Messiah. Period. You can't make God mad at you because you, the real you on the inside, always wants to do the right thing. Verse 2. Why? Because the law of the Spirit, the Torah of the Spirit, which produces this life in union with Jesus the Messiah, has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the Torah could not do by itself, because it lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate, God did by sending His own Son as a human being with a nature like our own sinful one, but without sin. God did this in order to deal with sin, and in so doing, He executed the punishment against sin in the human nature. Let me read that last sentence to you. God did this, talking about sending Jesus as a human being. God did this in order to deal with sin. He's talking about sin here means spiritual death. God did this to deal with spiritual death. And in so doing, he executed the punishment against spiritual death in human nature. In other words, spiritual death is, it can be summed up in three things. Sin, sickness, and poverty. That's spiritual death. It has many other offshoots. It has many other characteristics. But those are the three main categories that Jesus redeemed us from. And it's saying very simply this. Because Jesus came to the earth as a human being with a sin nature, with a fleshly nature like ours, just without sin, because he executed the punishment on sin in the flesh, that's why there's no condemnation to you when you stumble and fall over your flesh. The punishment has already been executed. Therefore, there's none left for you. Now, folks, this is what righteousness really means. Righteousness really means you, the man on the inside, can't sin. Because the man on the inside created in Christ Jesus always wants to do the right thing. Now, your soul can sin. Your body can sin. I personally believe this is just my personal opinion. I believe it's a sin of the soul to not exercise ourselves to overcome the desires of our flesh, the sinful nature of the flesh. Because it's up to you whether or not you conquer sin in your life. It's entirely up to you. It's not up to God. Jesus did the work. He executed punishment against spiritual death. Therefore, you have the power. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You're complete in him. It is yours if you'll do what Paul tells us he did to overcome. Now, if you choose not to, you'll have to answer for that. But honestly, that doesn't get you a second-class seat in heaven. It just forfeits some of the blessings of God here on the earth. As a result, you won't have as many eternal rewards if you choose to not renew your mind to the Word, if you choose not to, to, uh, to exercise your soul towards your spirit. 
towards spiritual things. You just miss out on things here on the earth. You don't miss out on heaven. You don't miss out on God's love in any way whatsoever. You just miss out on some of the blessings here on the earth. God did this in order to deal with sin, spiritual death, and in so doing, he executed the punishment against sin in the human nature so that the just requirement of the Torah, the law, might be fulfilled in us who do not run our lives according to what our old nature wants, but according to what the Spirit wants. In other words, he's saying, use your soul towards your spirit or towards spiritual things. Four, verse five, for those who identify with their old nature. Now, notice he's not talking about those who are unsaved. He said those Christians who identify with their old nature. In other words, those who have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus but do not exercise their soul, their mind, their will, and their emotions towards spiritual things are still going to continue and live in the same conflict that Paul is having or Paul had before he learned how to walk in victory. For those who identify with their old nature set their minds on the things of the old nature. But those who identify with the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Having one's mind controlled by the old nature is death. But having one's mind controlled by the Spirit is life and shalom. Now, what is he saying? What is he talking about death? He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about the deeds of the body. He's saying to be spiritually minded is life. To be carnally minded will lead you into the the activities of the body that were just the same as the old man, just the same as those who are unsaved. In other words, your body doesn't change because you got saved. And if you don't do something to overcome the desires of your body, your body will act the same way as it did before it got saved, before you, the man on the inside, got saved. For the mind control, verse 7, for the mind controlled by the old nature is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's Torah. Indeed, it cannot. What's he talking about? He's talking about the soul. He's talking about, he's talking about making a decision how to exercise your soul, making a decision what to focus your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions on. Now, this is the same group he says in chapter 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he's giving him the answer. We've got the benefit of being able to read ahead and know what the answer is. But he's spelling it out for them step by step by step. Thus, verse 8, those who identify with their old nature cannot please God. But you, you do not identify with your old nature, but with the Spirit, provided the Spirit of God is living inside of you. Please notice what he's talking about. King James says, in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. Notice how he's defining this. He's saying, but you're not in the flesh if you're born again. He's talking about the real you. He's not talking about the deeds of the body. He's talking about the real you. You are not in the flesh if you're born again, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's why there's never any condemnation to a Christian. Because you're not in the flesh. You may be stumbling over your flesh. You may not be exercising your soul in the right way to renew, to, to, uh, renewing your mind to the Word. But you, the real you, is in the Spirit. And the real you, the man on the inside, always wants to do what's right and always wants to obey the Word. Now, he may be so covered up by natural actions and natural thoughts that you don't realize that you really want to do what's right. But you really do from the inside because that's where the life and the love of God is. But you, wait a minute, where was I? Verse 9, but you, you who do not identify with your old nature but with the Spirit, providing the Spirit of God is living inside of you for anyone who does have the doesn't have the spirit of the Messiah, doesn't belong to him. However, if the Messiah is in you, 
then on the one hand, the body is dead because of sin, but on the other hand, the Spirit is giving life because God considers you righteous. Notice what it takes for God to consider you righteous. Just being born again. God doesn't consider you righteous if you've overcome your flesh. He doesn't consider you more righteous if you've overcome and gained the victory of your flesh than if you're struggling with your flesh and stumbling over it day after day after day. You don't grow in righteousness. You grow in knowledge of the Word. You may grow in victory, but you're righteous just the same either way. So the benefit is not a heavenly benefit. The benefit is an earthly benefit. It makes the difference not in heaven because you're righteous in God's sight either way. The difference that it makes is what you partake of here because of your renewed mind to the Word. Do you see it? See the difference between the real you, the man on the inside and the man on the outside? Verse 11, and if the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then the one who raised Jesus Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit living in you. So then, brothers, we don't owe a thing to our old nature that would require us to live according to our old nature. In other words, he's saying, because this is true, because we've already been made righteous. Notice what Paul came to realize. All the time that he's stumbling over his flesh, he's righteous. All the time that he can't control his body, he's righteous. He doesn't have to do something to gain righteousness. He's righteous because he did something, made Jesus the Lord of his life. You don't become righteous when you gain the victory over your flesh. You're righteous when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. God doesn't like you better if you gain the victory over your flesh because you're righteous now. That's a different way to think, huh? And that's exactly what Paul is showing us as an example. Here's what I learned to think. Here's what I realized and learned to use my mind to to think in line with. Verse 13, for if you live according to your old nature, you will certainly die. But if by the Spirit you keep putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. What's he talking about? He's not talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. He's not even talking about physical life and physical death. He's talking about providing, producing fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. Now, there are some things, there are some uh, natural evil activities that will take years off of your life. And certainly, if we fail to exercise our souls, our mind, our will, and our emotion toward the things of God, then that's failing to walk in wisdom because wisdom is the Word of God. And the Bible says that you can do things by operating in wisdom that will add years to your life. And there are things that you do if you fail to operate in wisdom that will take years off of your life. But that doesn't have anything to do with God's will. God's will is the same for everybody. That has to do with a person's choice. And we can all make the same choice. We can all make an equal choice, whatever that might be, because we're all made righteous by the blood of Jesus. It's not that God has favorites. He doesn't want one thing for one person and something else for somebody else. Good for one and bad for another. That's not the way it works. He wants the same good and the same blessings for everybody, and you gain those through Jesus. But it's your choice. And your actions determine your results. Not with God, but with participating and taking hold of the things of God. 
Verse 14, all who are led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to bring you back again into fear. On the contrary, you receive the spirit who makes us sons and by whose power we cry out, Abba, that is dear father. The spirit himself bears witness with our own spirits that we are the children of God. He's talking about being children of God. He's talking about being righteous in God's sight. And if we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with the Messiah, providing we are suffering with him in order also to be glorified with him. I don't think the sufferings we are going through now are even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us in the future. Let's skip down a few verses to uh, verse 31. What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that did not spare even his own son, but gave him up on behalf of us all. Is it possible that having given us his son, would he not give us everything else too? Please notice the case that he's making. The case that he's making is because you're already righteous in the sight of God. Because God has already made you complete in him. Because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Shouldn't you want to partake of all the things that Jesus purchased? What does that mean? That means overcoming the desires of your flesh. Gaining victory over your flesh. He's encouraging them. He's not commanding them. He's not saying do this or else. He's saying since he's already given you these things and everything else that goes along with Jesus... Shouldn't you want to take hold of it too? He's encouraging them to renew their minds to the truth. He's encouraging them to use their soul for spiritual things so that their spirit gains the mastery over their flesh. So who, verse 33, so who will bring a charge against God's chosen people? Certainly not God. He's the one who causes them to be considered righteous. I love that verse in this translation. We read that again. So who will bring a charge against God's chosen people? In other words, where's the condemnation coming from? Can't be God. He's the one that calls you to be righteous. Who punishes them? Certainly not the Messiah, Jesus, who died and more than that has been raised and is at the right hand of God and actually pleading on our behalf. Who will separate us from the love of the Messiah? Trouble, hardship, persecution, hunger, poverty, danger, war? As the psalm puts it, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37. No, in all these things we are super conquerors through the one who has loved us. Why are you a super conqueror? He's saying the, the, the people are super conquerors that may be stumbling over their flesh like he was. How in the world can you be a super conqueror? Because you've been made righteous. You're not a super conqueror because you overcome your flesh. You're not a super conqueror because you've done great works. You're a super conqueror because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life. And the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. Now turn with me over to 3 John 2. Let me show you one more thing in in line with this. I know we're running out of time, but if it's all right with you, I'm going to finish a little bit of this. The reason I'm... uh, Almost every time I say, well, we'll pick up here next time, and it's so hard to come back and pick up where we were before. So let me go a little bit further with this before we close. Third John, the third epistle of John, verse 2. It's just a little short one chapter. Notice what John said in the second verse. He said, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. Now, the word wish here is used eight times in the, in the, uh, the, the New Testament. Four times it's translated wish in some form, wish or wished. 
The other four times, it's translated either pray or will. So I don't care what you want to define this or or how, how you want to translate this verse. Because if he's inspired by the Holy Ghost, then he either wishes, he desires, he wills, or he's praying something by the Holy Ghost. And some people have said, yeah, but this is written to an individual. It's not written to the church. If the Holy Ghost saved it for us, it's written to you. If it's in here, then it's inspired by the Holy Ghost. And if it wasn't for everybody, then the Holy Ghost shouldn't have saved it for us. There's a lot of other letters that were written that weren't saved. This one is here for a reason. I wish, will, pray, whatever word you want to use, I don't care. Here's the Holy Ghost saying, here's what God wants for you, just like he wanted for him, because God's no respecter of persons. If God wanted it for Gaius, who this was written to, then he wants the same thing for you. What does God want for this individual? This individual is saved because uh, of course, uh, John calls him a child, calls him one of his sons in the faith. So here, what does the Holy Ghost want for believers? I wish, pray, will above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Stop the presses. I thought prosperity and healing was what Jesus paid for. Absolutely right. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Why? Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It is so simple to go back and find out that the blessing of Abraham included healing and prosperity. As a matter of fact, most of the curse of the law has to do with those two things, sickness and poverty. And the Bible says if you keep the law and the commandment of God, this is Old Testament, if you keep the commandment of God, then all these blessings will come on you. The blessing of healing, the blessing of prosperity. God talks about blessing you in the city, in the field, blessing you in every hand, flocks, herds, whatever you do, whatever you put your hand to, the blessing is yours. Now, if Jesus paid that for us, why is Paul, is uh, John, excuse me, why is John wishing or willing or praying by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that somebody take hold of it. Because it's not up to God. It's up to the individual. Jesus did pay for it. But just because he paid for it doesn't mean it's going to fall on you like ripe cherries off of a tree. It's going to come to you if, if you take hold of it, just like you took hold of salvation, by faith. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Now, notice what John tells us by the Holy Ghost about how that works. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. Everybody wants that, don't they? Even as your soul prospers. In other words, he's saying the degree of health that you're going to walk in is going to determine, be determined by the prosperity of your soul. The degree of prosperity, material blessings that you walk in here on the earth is not determined by your skill, not determined by your ability, not determined by God's special plan for your life. It's determined by one and only one thing, and that is the degree or the measure with which you renew your mind to this truth. Now, the prosperous soul has to mean the same thing as the saving of the soul. James 1.21, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. It has to mean the same thing as Psalm 23.3, where David's speaking of the Lord's being my shepherd. He restores my soul. What in the world is David talking about his soul being restored to? He never was born again. Why is the Holy Ghost giving David the inspiration to tell us a psalm that, that pertains to our day? 
and talking about the restoring of the soul because the restoration of the soul refers back to Adam before he fell. What was Adam's thought life like before sin entered into the world? Everything he knew, everything he thought on, everything that he operated in was from the knowledge given him by God. Adam spent 930 years after he fell learning how to think according to the world. Before that, he thought only according to the information God gave him. And David says, and is inspired by the Holy Ghost, that the work of Jesus being our shepherd, the new covenant day that we live in, is that he restores our soul. For us, it's a reversal from thinking according to the world's way of things to thinking according to the knowledge of God. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's going to happen one and only one way, and that is through the knowledge of God's Word. Spiritual growth is all about the renewing of the mind. It's all about soul development. We talk about putting the Word in your heart. How do you put the Word in your heart? You put the Word in your heart through meditating. Why does that work? Because meditating goes through your mind and drops down into your spirit. Paul said himself about being saved. How can you get saved if you don't hear? And how can you hear without a preacher? Why is that necessary? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. You can't believe if you don't hear. Why? If God wants you to be saved, why didn't he bypass the hearing part? The hearing part is of the soul. It's not of the flesh. Your flesh doesn't hear. Your soul hears. Why is that necessary? Because the soul is the gatekeeper for the spirit. The degree to which you renew your mind to the word, gain the knowledge of God's word and act on it, determines your spiritual growth and development. Can you see it? That's what Paul learned that caused him to be a victor, a champion over his flesh. He didn't change inside. He didn't change outside. He changed in the understanding of the soul about what God's already given us in Jesus. Every blessing of God comes through the renewing of the mind so that your spirit can take hold of it by faith. Everything you'll ever need in life comes from knowledge of God's word so that our spirit can take hold of it by faith. Faith is a spiritual force. Faith faith is not a soulish force. It's a spiritual force. But it can't be accessed from your spirit without coming through your soul. Let me give you one example as we close. And that is, here's the reason why so many people have trouble with tongues. Being filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking with tongues, this is something that tripped me up. I gained some knowledge of it through my mom. She got filled with the Holy Ghost, and she was telling me some stuff. I didn't want to hear it, but some of it sank in anyway, and she left books around, and I read a couple of little books about it. I realized that what she had was bringing her close to God. It it gave her an excitement about her Christian walk that I had never seen in her life. I I saw the, the good fruit. I saw that there was something good about it, but I didn't want her bugging me about it. I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to do anything, so I took the book in my room. And it's one of Brother Hagin's little books. And in the back of the book, it had a little prayer. Here's how to pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I just repeated that prayer, basically, 
I used it as a guideline, knelt down by my bed, and I said, Lord, I ask you to fill me with the Holy Ghost in Jesus' name. Just simple faith. Didn't even know it was faith. Just simple faith. And on the inside, there was something. I, I, I don't know how to describe it, but there was something that it was almost like I could see words on the inside. And I knew that if I'd speak them out, that it was the thing to do. It was like I saw these words on the inside. They were trying to rise up. And if I just opened my, my mouth, they'd come out. Well, I opened my mouth and I spoke these things out and, and, and I spoke in tongues. And after about 10 seconds of doing that, there was a voice that came to my mind. It wasn't from my spirit. It didn't come from the inside. A voice came from the outside to my mind. The devil's not inside of me. He doesn't speak on the inside of me. I don't know about you. Now, if you're born again, the devil always speaks from the outside. This voice came from the outside and said these words. That's not the Holy Ghost. That's just you. Well, he was right. And I knew he was right. And I thought that meant I didn't really have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Oh, well, I don't know what I'm doing anyway, so I guess it just didn't work. And I went for about two months until I got in one of Brother Hagin's meetings in Nashville, Tennessee, Went up at the end of the service, stayed a long time after the, after the, the service in the, in the prayer room. I was the last one in the prayer room. There were a couple of hundred people that went to this thing. It's a big meeting. I'm the last one in the prayer room because nothing anybody is saying is applying to me. And I'm standing there in the prayer room and they're trying to get me filled with the Holy Ghost and finally just feeling sorry for them because it's not working. I didn't think I just spoke in tongues like I did a couple of months before. And the guy slapped me on the back and said, that's it, that's it, that's it. I said, no, that's not it. That's just me. I just felt sorry for you, so I thought I'd help out. This was Doug Jones. He and I are good friends now. He started laughing, and he said, is this why you've stayed in here for so long? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I started getting offended. You know, just got my back up. And he took me to the Scripture, took me to Acts chapter 2, verse 4, and said, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak. He said, who began to speak? I said, well, the Holy Ghost did. He said, read it again. I read it through about 10 times. He said, who, began, who, who did the talking? I said, the Holy Ghost. See, in my mind, my thinking, my understanding, my soul is thinking the Holy Ghost is supposed to take hold of your tongue and your voice and make it happen. And that's not what the Bible says. And my wrong understanding was keeping me not from receiving it, but my wrong understanding was keeping me from enjoying the benefits of what I already had by the Holy Ghost. He finally showed me. I finally saw it. They were all filled and began, meaning they began to speak. He said, God's part is not the speaking part. God's part is the giving you utterance. In other words, it's not the who's talking that's supernatural. It's the what that's being said. And I saw it. And, he, and I said, you mean I can do this anytime I want to? He said, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to work. He said, why don't you just do it now? So we just stood there and spoke in tongues for about five or ten minutes. And man, I got blessed because now my thinking has changed. My mind has become renewed to the Word in that one little verse. And I've been speaking in tongues ever since. Now, here's what happens with people. When we speak in tongues, it bypasses our mind, and our mind is used to being in control. And so our mind is the arena where the devil speaks to us and says, this isn't right. This is some mystical, spiritual, spooky thing. You're not in control of it. Your mind's not telling you the words to say. You better be careful because the devil knows you're speaking divine secrets. But if you just go ahead and do what the Bible says, your mind will learn to, to shut up and cooperate. But a lot of people never get there. They get afraid. 
they get to thinking, well, maybe this is something of the devil because my mind is bypassing my mind. These words are not coming from my mind, so I don't have control of it. Maybe the devil is taking me over. But if they become renewed to the word, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. When they gain the knowledge of the word, then they can cooperate and their mind shuts right up. Spiritual development is gained primarily. And when I say primarily, I mean 99.99% of it is through the knowledge of God's Word. The knowledge of being made righteous in Christ Jesus, the knowledge of the difference of the man on the inside and the man on the outside, the knowledge that God's not mad at you, can't get mad at you no matter what you do, no matter how long you've been stumbling over your flesh, He's still on your side and there's no punishment, there's no judgment, there's no damnation or condemnation in any way whatsoever that God will ever have towards you because you're his child. That gives you the strength to want to overcome because God's pulling for you, not against you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Father, help us to see as we renew our mind to the truth just who we are in Christ Jesus. Help us to see, Father, that because you've given us Jesus, you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. You've, you've blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. It's impossible for our prayers to fail when we gain the knowledge of your word and pray your word back to you. Oh, Father, open our eyes and help us to see that you're always on our side. No matter how many times we're stumbling and falling over our flesh, no matter how long it's been, no matter how many times a day it happens, help us to see, Father, that we're still the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and that you're on our side. And as we gain knowledge of who we are in him, in Christ, then we'll gain the victory over our flesh. We'll become mature sons and daughters led of the Holy Ghost, walking in the truth of your word. Father, we thank you that these things are true in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.